A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Bonjour, merci d'avoir téléchargé la politique sur le canapé. Heureusement, le reste du podcast sera en anglais. I'm Raphael Baer, and much though I wish I could sustain a whole podcast in French, I don't think you'd thank me for trying. But what we do have here is a podcast all about France. Or rather, what France means to Britain, and British politics in particular. The idea of France, and what it has in common with and what it gets wrong about the actual France. Why France? Well, it's next door for a start. It's our neighbour, our very close ally in some respects, and in others, our oldest rival. And this very week, that's the first week of March 2023, if you're listening back some other time, Rishi Sunak is crossing the channel for a bilateral summit meeting with President Emmanuel Macron. This isn't a podcast about that meeting, or the political context around it, It was recorded before Rishi Sunak had done his deal in Brussels to tweak the Northern Ireland protocol of the Brexit deal, which will certainly lighten the mood music around the summit. But I'm interested in the bigger picture, the cultural mythology around relations between these two countries. How is it a place that is so close and with which we have so much in common can still be so alien? Have our respective cultures and political traditions evolved in ways that make us unusually prone to misunderstandings. It sometimes feels that way. To get to the bottom of this, I turn to someone who knows both sides of the story, and crucially, both languages. She is Georgina Wright, Senior Fellow and Director of the Europe Programme at the Institut Montaigne in Paris. But she has also been an Associate of the Institute for Government in London, Senior Fellow at the Centre for Britain and Europe at the University of Surrey. She's written about Anglo-French relations and Britain's complex European entanglements for pretty much every prestigious policy think tank west of the Rhine. Just the person, in other words, to help me get to grips with what Britain means to France and what France means to Britain. While there's a lot more to the story than Brexit, there's no escaping the fact that Britain leaving the EU colours the view from Paris. So that's where my conversation with Georgina started. With me, 
wondering what the French make of their neighbour's decision to quit the European club. In France, people were shocked, surprised and, and hurt, actually, that the UK voted to leave the EU. But they heard time and time again from British politicians that this is it, the UK was going to do things differently, it was going to seize its independence. And of course, that was used by some French politicians, especially from the far right, to say, well, look, the UK seizing its independence, it's going to do things differently. You're not hearing that anymore because six years on, it's not clear what the UK has been able to do differently. You've got some examples, but but it's not the sort of overhaul or or, or new vision that has come out. And so what you're hearing in France is a sense of, has this country lost its way? And it's kind of sad because um, if they think back, they always talk about cool Britannia, you know, around Tony Blair. Wow, it was the country we wanted to, to be. We all wanted to move to London. We wanted to live in this vibrant cosmopolitan city. They were showing us the way to, to, to kind of deal with our history, but also protect our future. And there's a sense now that they're just not really paying that much attention to what's happening in the UK, that they think, regardless of what they think of Brexit, they just really hope that the UK will get back on track. And actually, when you look at the press coverage of the UK, and, and I'm just going to small parentheses here, but the France, Fran- French people don't talk about the British as much as the British think they do. I mean, that they, you know, that the cover, they don't sort of every day wake up thinking, what's happening in London? What do they think? And it's, it's, it's sporadic at, at best, but the coverage has been overwhelmingly negative. It's about strikes. It's about public infrastructure not working. It's about, uh, you know, Conservative Party infighting. It's about the Labour Party doing really well in the polls, but not really being clear on on policy. So it's not, it's not very positive. And I think there's a real sense of just hope that it will get better. Um, because, because actually, you know, we like to criticise the UK, but we also really need the UK to, to, to do well. I think there was a point where sort of just in terms of the sheer volume of French people uh, in one city. London was one of the biggest French cities in the world. Fourth, yeah. Um, and I do, I do remember that, um, you know, that that period when, in the sort of early Blair years, uh, Blair himself, he went over to the to the French Parliament. He addressed them in in bad French. The um, yeah, the Union Jack became, was a sort of a fashion symbol, and you sense that, yeah, and particularly in France, in a way that was worn in a way that I've never seen a French tricolor worn, you know, on sort of you know swimming trunks in in Britain. You know, not like go around looking at people's swimming trunks, but you know what I mean. Um, it was just a sort of a, it was an emblem that transcended just a sort of national flag thing. I don't know. That seems to be connected with that whole era of uh, globalisation where everything seems to be working, the post-Cold War moment and where sort of liberal capitalism was very dynamic and, and it, it felt that sort of Britain had caught a wave and actually France was the slightly declining, stagnant, stale one that needed to look up. And then so I wonder to what extent parking Brexit, there was also a sort of a post-financial crisis thing happened where everyone went, oh yeah, actually that British model, nah, maybe that wasn't such a good idea after all. I think definitely the last couple of crises, the financial crisis, um, uh, obviously Brexit, and even to a certain extent now, uh, well, COVID definitely, and then and then the Ukraine war, and you see that we're all connected, and that actually one model isn't the answer to everything. So that's absolutely true. Uh, but I do think, and you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it was cool to be British. Do you know what I mean? It was cool to to have the British passport. Um, it was it was cool to have spent some time in London. And I remember at the time talking to some French friends saying, oh, our parents are just 
angry that we all want to move to, to London because they think the creme de la creme of French, you know, our best French engineers, our best, um, you know, French mathematicians, our artists, our, you know, they're all moving to London and, and Paris is, is sort of not benefiting from that. Um, and that you're just not hearing anymore. And there's a sense of, if you ask a French person, you know, what's your favourite country in the world? They will always say France. <laughs> France is the best country. We have the best food, the best schools, our history, our art, our culture. And they're so proud of this. And, and maybe you can come on to this, at how this kind of permeates everything that they do. Even when they give speeches, they have to refer to this obscure text that was published in the 15th century because, you know, it was French and we said it first and all the rest of it. Um, and and in a way, um, back in, in sort of the height of Blair, there was this sense of, well, well, they don't have, you know, our cuisine. They don't have the beauty of, of the mountains and the sea in the way that we do. And yet they are cool. Um, but but I think, yes, with the financial crisis and everything else, it, it, I think it just proved to the French and to many other people that actually economics and your model and your openness isn't enough to actually protect you from from crises and, and, and protect your people. And I think at the moment there is this sense of, do you know what, we, we thought we were we were lagging behind, but actually now when we look at what's happening in the UK, maybe we've not done so badly after all. Yeah, I need this sort of corrective here in my own head because, I mean, I go to France you know, whenever I can. I'm a big Francophile um, you know, culturally and, and that's where you know, I go on holiday. Uh, and it, that's, that's a very dangerous kind of cognitive bias you can introduce to yourself because it means when you're in a country, when you're there, enjoying yourself having and you look at everything this is all great all works you know the, they, they pay high municipal taxes but they have wonderful swimming pools and ice rinks so you know it's, it's, a, it's and obviously you know, France has its own problems and I do remember when uh, at the height of those sort of Brexit wars 2016 to 2019 and British politics was the you know, gridlocked in an absolute crisis uh, it was a, a former U- British European commissioner uh, said to me look you know bear in mind that Yes, it feels like a sort of a civil war, but it's a civil war that's being actually waged pretty politely. Uh, you know, there's people shouting at each other on Parliament Square, but they're not fighting. They're not setting fire to cars. It's not like the Gilets Jaunes. There hasn't been tear gas on the streets. You know, if this were happening in France, there would be riot police like marching up and down the Champs Elysees. So, you know, you can be a bit, you can sort of be overly romantic about other political cultures being more functional. Uh, than your own and and I, I don't know I suppose the, 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 my question then is really it, it's quite convenient to have Britain really sort of flailing around not really knowing what it's doing uh, when you're France because it means you get to feel a bit better about a, a very equivalent country in terms of size and scale uh, doing worse than you. To be completely honest I think they care more about what the Germans think about them than they do about the British um, and Germany will always be the benchmark. If you talk to French people, they say, you know, we've got better food, we've got better culture, our histories, you know, it, it goes back thousands of years and everything else. But actually, the Germans have better infrastructure, you know, the, the, the cost of in crisis isn't as harsh there. And, and it's always their benchmark has always been Germany. So actually, it helps, I think, some politicians to look at what's happening in the UK. But actually, there will always be it, it, a real sense, and I'm not just saying this because I'm, I'm based in Paris. When I talk to people, I was myself surprised. I thought actually that they would be using the UK to say, look, it's the basket case that has it has become and everything else. But that's not at all what you hear. You hear a sense of actually, you know, pretty much the same sized economy, 
Uh, we have the same, you know, we view the world in the same way. We share many of the same instincts. We do strategy differently, but actually putting us in a room is a good thing because we kind of come together and, and we can be, we can come out of it much stronger because we've exchanged. We see the world the same way, so it's easier to talk to each other. And so with that in mind, actually, it's not this sort of, oh, well, we this is great for us because we can use what's happening in the UK and, and show how wonderful we're doing. But there is, by default, still a sense of, well, maybe we don't have it so bad. So it's not to use it um, as a ha-ha, look what's happening, but much more at a, a kind of let's stop and pause and, and look at what's happening in France and maybe realize that that things aren't so bad. But also the other thing I'd say is if you talk to the average French person, they don't really know what's going on in other countries at all. Um, and so they will always say, we have the worst infrastructure. We have the worst healthcare system. To, to use foreigners, they'll say everything's the best. We have the most beautiful country, the best infrastructure. We have the best opportunities. But actually, when they're talking amongst themselves, they always feel that it's much worse than anywhere else um, in the world. So I think there's a difference between politicians looking at what's happening elsewhere and using that. Um, and then the average person who will will kind of just look at what's happening in France and and sort of decry the fact that food isn't as good as it used to be. It's so much more expensive. I mean, when the price of the baguette went up by like ten cents, it was. I mean, I thought people were going to you know riot in the street, and, and that's the final thing I'd say. Where this sense of revolution, you have to fight. It's very much in French, their like French DNA. And so in a way, when people go to the streets, of course, when you see cars blow up and everything else, that is a cause for worry. When people are out in the streets and fighting and saying harsh words, as part of, you know, people are like, well, that's how you change things is by fighting and shouting and, and being very loud. So it's also a different approach, I think, to, to striking and saying things. Yeah, this is incredibly interesting. I agree. I mean, certainly it's been put to me that you know, actually, Britain could benefit from having a little bit more of that sense of the agency of the people and that coming out on the streets is part of the dialogue that you have with power and with leadership. And this is essentially a, a sort of a fork in the road that opened up in 1789. And, and we know, the French went down one way and, and Britain went down another. You've written, I think, as well about the the fact that just in strategic terms, you know, the, the Europe's two nuclear powers, similar sized army, the, the Franco-British alliance in security and defence will always be something different to what France has with Germany um, for all sorts of historical reasons. And that's even true after Brexit. And then you have this tension between that as a, just a serious, pragmatic, strategic thing that makes these two countries destined to have a relationship and also they're next to each other. And then almost unusually extreme sense that the cult, the political cultures are so different and so divergent. And I can't tell whether that's exaggerated. Intuitively, it feels very, very true to me that there's something about French political culture that as someone who observes it and watches it and tries to understand it, I keep thinking, wow, this is properly alien for a country that's so near to mine. Yeah. And they will, I think, exaggerate those differences, both the British and the French when they meet. So they will say, well, look at us. We do things so differently. Um, the French will say, we'll spend hours talking because that's that's how you make better decisions. Whereas the British will say, no, you come to a meeting knowing what you want, three points, and then you're going to discuss this particular thing and then you'll try and find a compromise. So it's a very different ap approach. But I also feel with the French and the British, it's a little bit like holding a mirror to oneself as well, where they sort of recognize each other and they sort of 
show the things that they don't really like about each other to each other. And so that's why they exaggerate their differences. And and the other problem is they also think that they know each other much better than they actually do. And so I've, I've for example, remember distinctly, I think it was about a year ago, sitting in a meeting where you had British and French officials and think tank. It was just a general kind of uh, a meeting where we were discussing, I think, you know, what France and the UK could do together in for European security or something like that. And you had a point of style which was distinctly different. So you had uh, the French person coming in all guns blazing. This is what we think. This is what we not, don't like. And this was what we're proposing. And I remember at the coffee break, um, uh, a Brit come up to me and they're like, is, is this really what they mean? Because they said it was isn't interesting, but maybe next time we could do this. And I was like, there's no hidden meaning for the French. No double meaning. If that's what they said, that's what they mean. Whereas I saw then the British official go, you know, perhaps you'd like to consider this. And, and that was completely lost on the French because perhaps you might like to consider means it's nice to have, it's not a must have. Whereas actually... You can ignore this, yeah. Actually, what the British official was saying was making a major point of disagreement, but it was so coated in kind of, you know, I, I would approach this by, you know, suggesting and that just doesn't work. So in a way... That's so interesting. And so I know exactly what you mean in that sense. That that is a British thing of saying, well, had you considered the possibility that actually there's another way of doing this, which actually means that is a terrible idea. There's no way we can do that. You know, and yeah, I I mean, sorry, carry on. No, I was just saying another example, which I, you know, this is something someone had to come come up to me after six months and say, you should really stop saying this because it's really stressful for the the French or French interlocutors. Because when you meet someone, in a professional context in the UK, you'll say, how do you do? You don't really, ca- you know, you know the person's not going to say, well, actually, I had a really bad night. <laughs> I'm not feeling great. And I've got, you know, they just go, oh, fine, you know, or how do you do? And um, and so in French, I'd say, well, you know, how, how are you? And I could tell that the French person was like, oh, my goodness, why is this person not? Because I'm going to have to now respond, but I don't know this person, I feel. And, you know, it's a way because they just, they are very frank and they are very honest. And so if you ask them a question, that, that usually means that, that that question is the question you're asking. You're not saying it just because, you know, that's the thing that you do or because, you know, you don't actually care. So, so there's a real difference in approach. That's really interesting. And also that was interesting. I mean, it was slightly different with the Brexit negotiations because there you had the issue that the commission had its mandate and had its negotiating position. I mean, and, I mean yeah, Michel Barnier is French, right? But he's also representing the commission. And he, you know, so... To an extent, there was a strategic decision by the commission to say, look, we're literally going to put all the position papers on the internet. We're just going to know what we say. There's no hidden meaning. This is actually the position. Uh, so there was an element of that, of what you've just described in that. And also just that was, uh, they had to do that because of the institutional complexity of trying to get 26 member states on board. But at the same time, I think on the other side, on the British side, there was definitely an element of the officials what still wanting to do official British-style negotiation. The British politicians back in the UK briefing the Sun and the Mail to say, you know, we're going to stick it up their baguette or whatever it is they would say, you know, we'll hit them on the head with our, you know, we'll tweak the frog's legs, whatever horrible sort of thing they said. As if, like, in it, it didn't really matter because everyone knows that that's not really what they were thinking or... Yeah. Oh, they, it's all right. It's our domestic audience, and no one reads British newspapers. Like they do, they can read you. They can read your newspapers, and 
do you have is that distinction that doesn't happen i get the same i get the impression that's not quite the same in in in, no. in france and, and also the big difference is and i think british people often forget this macron is the head of state He's not just the head of government. He's Well, he's not the head of government, even though sometimes he likes to act like prime minister and president. He is the head of state. And so in a way, the French feel that they can criticise their head of state as much as they like because they have elected or not you know, this person in office. So you know, the reason why he's in office is because a majority of French people voted for him. But they don't appreciate it when foreigners criticize it because he's the head of state and that's why there's so much interest around the monarchy i mean you know there's of course history in the fact that the uk retained its monarchy and the france went down a different route that's a very euphemistic way to say cut off his head but yes <laughs> oh yeah yeah well you know I'm, I'm still british even though i've been in paris for a while but when you attack the head of state in that way they don't appreciate it because they say remember that he is our head of state so we're allowed to criticize him but not you Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I completely agree that something that's very poorly understood in the UK is that the Elysee is a palace and you know, the, the, the sense of the, the presidency uh, it is part of a constitutional apparatus that we don't really understand. Uh, and um, that's, I remember there was a moment when, I don't know whether it was caught on microphone or it was just reported afterwards, but with when it was Cameron and Sarkozy and Cameron Osborne had joked about Sarkozy needing a box to stand on because he's not very tall. I mean, Macron's not very tall either. Again, it was just one of those things where you you could, it, they had a sort of a whiff of snidey public school bullying about it that it, it was, it's so easy that stuff gets sloshes around Conservative Party and British politics so casually. And yeah, I, it, it, it definitely reached French ears, that comment. Yeah, because again, it's it's the head of state. So in a way, they can make those jokes. But as, as foreign needed, maybe you, you, you can criticise his policy. You can criticise what he says. You can't criticise the fact that he's French or you can't criticise his height. Do, do you see that it's, it's, it's not a very clear difference, but I've really sensed that that's something that they, they don't appreciate. I mean, there's another example from... Um, when the fishing negotiations were particularly tight in the build-up to the TCA. Jacob Rees-Mogg tweeted something like, it was October, and he's like, the French are always grumpy in October, it's the anniversary of Trafalgar and Agincourt, and so they get upset about that. And again, it's that same thing. It's like, this is, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that's terribly witty uh, in the sixth form at Eton, but you know, actually you're, you're a senior parliamentarian, 
I think at that stage she might even still be the cabinet minister. What are you talking about? Yeah. Um, it, 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 I mean, I don't, I don't get the impression following French politics that the need to filter relations with any country through such a remorselessly, you know, historico-obsessed lens uh, it, it, it is as feature as much as it is in the UK. Um, Am I wrong about that? I think it depends. In a way, and I'm like <laughs> Jacob Rees-Mogg's tweet didn't really. No one paid any notice in France, so I think had it been. Boris Johnson. Can I just say, can we just say, it's not true that the French are always grumpy in October because they're thinking about Trafalgar and Agincourt. I'm, I'm fairly confident about that. No, <laughs> no, that, no, I think that's absolutely right. They, they don't, you know, it's not something, they, they don't remember that kind of stuff. Also, they tend to remember uh, more their victories than, than, than their losses. So I think that's, uh, they don't, you know, but, but Jacob Rees-Mogg and his tweets and stuff like that, no one really cares all that much. It's much more serious if it comes from the prime minister. Um, I have to say, but um, but I do think there is something about you know reminding each each other of our long history of rivalry. So I know, for example, when the uh, head of the British Armed Forces comes to to Paris, he they, he goes to the Comte de Guerre, which is near La Vénite, where you know Napoleon is is buried, and they will meet, and there's this big painting of a Napoleonic war where they're defeating. Uh, the, the English, right? So it's a, there is a little bit of provocation sometimes, but it's I think it's you know fun provocate, and in a way, it's the same when the French armed forces go to uh, the UK and they will be met, and then then you know the French won't be signing something on Wellington's desk or something like that. I mean, there's it's sort of it's always going to be there, and it's part of the defining. It, it defines the, the the relationship in in many ways. But um, I think that's right to say that the sort of the French don't kind of think about those battles that they lost ages ago. But they, but they do talk about the battles that they that they win. Like I I sat in meetings where the French are talking about grand strategy. They love that talking about what foreign policy should look like. And you have people around the table go, oh, it's like that battle in eighteen thirty seven. I can't ever remember anyone in London saying that. So they do, but but I think they'll remember the good stuff rather than the other stuff yeah that's true in the uk as well i mean the the, the obsession with agincourt i mean that's partly because of shakespeare yeah. and henry v but you know the, no one knows about the battle of castillon yeah, exactly. uh but which ended the hundred years war because england lost and that was lost the hundred years war so it's like okay let's just let's forget about that jacob rees mogg doesn't refer to that one going sort of back to when you were based in the uk and you're looking at it what was your sense then of the role that france had in the British political imagination. This was sort of culturally intimidated by France and also want to feel that there's something that we've got which is a, a sort of honest pragmatism and their kind of lofty intellectualism is terribly impractical and that Napoleon's comment about the nation of shopkeepers was actually a compliment and we wear it with pride. And, and they, they, it feels to me that France is performing some function in the British political imagination distinct from the actual France. Do you know what I mean? So one of the things that uh, is a sign of of intelligence in France is to say very long speeches where you kind of use, uh, as I said, obscure kind of quotes or you draw on history and then you, at the end of your speech, 25-minute speech, will link to something you said at the very beginning. And so if you're someone that's been listening to this, if you can make sense of the whole thing, that shows that you're intelligent. But actually when you 
talk to French people, they say there is something quite nice about British simplicity, which is less is more. These are three points I'm going to make. And and in the UK, if you can say something complex simply, that is a, a sign of intelligence. And so there is a, a difference in approach. So they're both very proud of the way that they do things. But also, I think there's a little bit, you know, the French are a bit envious that the British can communicate much more easily. The stratcom, they call it. They're very good at com, international comms, whereas we're not good at all. I said, well, that's partly because you, you know, say the really long speeches that use lots of French, uh, you know, authors and intellectual thinkers. That actually, uh, you know, hello, most people around the world don't know who they are, even if you think they do. Um, and and so I think again, it's it's the sense of our differences are good because we come together and it drives and it, it make, innovates and we can sort of use that as a benchmark. But also, it's a mirror to. The things I'd quite like to do better, but I can't. The irony there is that the the, the one one person who I think actually you know, has a quite an, an affection for the idea of of rhetoric as an art form uh, and bringing in lots of historical illusion and and weaving around literary figures to get to. I know what you're going to say. Yeah, you know exactly what I'm going to say. And he speaks very good French as well. Is is uh, uh, Alexander Boris de Feffel Johnson? Mm-hmm. Um, but he becomes a sort of a pastiche of that sort of thing. Is it? So I'm just a sort of factual thing here. I, I remember learning at one point that actual formal rhetoric is is much more part of the French education system than the UK one. That so the idea that Andy School, you know, that you, how you would express yourself in those terms is 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 sort of valued in in the process. Is that still the case? Yeah, and the richer your vocabulary, uh, the more intelligent you are. Uh, uh, and there's a real And that is still very much valued and they love to talk. So you'll have meetings to know whether we should hold a meeting. You know, it's it's a lot of time spent around the table and especially around a a dinner table. You know, you will meet and talk about work uh, in the morning over breakfast where you have a croissant, a coffee, and then you'll do it over lunch and then you do it over supper. The better your vocabulary, the longer your speech and the more kind of, you know, intricate it is, the better it is. The problem with that is that you're assuming that everyone in the audience has had the same education as you have and and will understand the kind of historical analogies that you're that you're putting and and you know it's fine it's it's kind of still it well it, it still works in France it doesn't really translate well outside of France and I think that is that still true also of the the, the more of the sort of populist end I mean would would um you know Le Pen uh, sort of Benefit, you know, aspire to make a, a grand speech, or would she game the slightly more Trumpy thing of saying by doing a full-on demotic, basic language, crudely speaking, I'm undercutting that, and I'm saying, you know what, people, I can just speak the language of normal people. So she's very good because it depends who she's talking to. If you've seen her speak to uh, universities, she will tend to fall back on the. Normalia, we call it Normalia, l'école normale supérieure is, is one of these cons yeah. in France that teaches you to structure a speech with three points. So she will, she will use that structure. When she's out campaigning, I'm thinking of small towns or the rural areas, and she'll use a different kind of speech. And she's, and she'll say, I, I'm like you. I speak like you. Uh, these elites are out of touch. So she will, she will actually change, but I don't think she could ever expect to become president unless she unless she's able to demonstrate that she also has a firm command of history and of culture and that she's also read some of the important texts i think it's a re- you know french really like that and admire that 
That's very interesting because the whole point of Trump is he was so effective at saying all of that stuff is an apparatus that smug Washington and New York liberal types use to exclude you and despise you and by playing to the sort of essentially sort of ramping up the demotic um, to use a sort of French way of expressing it um, uh, he you know, it was in- incredibly effective I think she definitely does both because uh, if you look at Zimor who was the other f- far right candidate yeah. um, he was very much into you know, complex speeches and you know analogies and, and but he didn't do all the other stuff which uh, Le Pen does which is TikTok and look at me with my cats and and saying just let me give me one minute to respond to your question so she does both and I think that really also um, raises her appeal to a number of people who think well actually and you know she can deliver a very complex speech that must show that shows she's intelligent right she can do good policy but also she can talk simply and that means that she and that I can understand her which makes me feel you know uh, it, it doesn't make me feel as as dumb as I could by listening to other politicians and by the way she also talks about issues simply that I really really care about and, and the interesting thing with Le Pen is she doesn't really have solutions, but she's very good at putting her finger on the problem yeah, and for describing that problem simply. And I think that wins her points. That affection for the, the sort of grand rhetoric and the lofty style and the intricate argument, you know, as someone who's studied French, both the language and the literature quite a lot, it's always struck me that there is something, even at the level of the language itself, that craves abstraction and loves building these you know i remember reading trying to read um some french existentialism oh, no. for example in french but not even at that level but just a lot of french texts i always feel that it's building this elaborate you know sort of crystalline structure of abstraction that's in, i can sort of see and admire in my head while i'm reading it and then when i close the book i can't remember any of it and i, I can't hold on to it because it's so abstract so the french would say to you Raphael, the, the answer is very clear it's just that you haven't taken the time to speak about what you've read with friends or the wine <laughs> you know the coffee this the, the, honestly this is what they will say so sometimes i read an article <laughs> exactly well i i will make that happen we will, we will go to somewhere where Sartre used to you know meet all his friends and you know it's a joke but really it's not a joke i mean down just downstairs from where i live there is on the corner this um it's an imprimerie, so they printing shop and um every tuesday night uh a, a group of people i think they average age must be like 80 and they are and they're drinking red wine and they're talking about uh things that they've read and i mean this is it actually happens and it's happening just down there so one night i went um and then but but then i sort of didn't haven't gone back because they they just expect you to have time to read lots and lots of very intricate things which i sadly don't have the time right now but what the french would say is it's normal you haven't understood everything the reason but you've you've read it and now we've got to talk about it and we should spend as much time talking about it as you have spent reading it and then it will all make sense in britain there is an idea that empiricism as a philosophical proposition is a bit more indigenous to our culture with Locke and hume that seems to be quite deep in british political culture as distinct from thinking an idea like the republic or even uh, égalité, fraternité, liberté, the idea that you could hold those up as powerful objects in your political culture 
Oh, I, I'm not sure. I don't think we have that here, actually. In one way, actually, freedom is oh, that's complicated. That might be, yeah, that might be talking. Um, whatever the French for bollocks is. L'économie, I suppose, would be the French for bollocks. I think you're right. And I think the French, um, you know, the, the fact that it's abstract doesn't really matter because it inspires, you, it leads you on into a path of, of kind of, of that idea of becoming more concrete. And you do it by talking, you do it by reflecting. It's actually the journey matters almost as much as where you're going to end up. Whereas I think that's not the same human, the empiricist approach, which is very much, we need to know what we're trying to achieve and then the path becomes much greater. So it's, it's a different approach, but actually ultimately probably end up roughly the same, you know, in the same place. The more abstract the idea, the better, frankly, because because then you're you're giving yourself as much space as possible for that journey and it could go in all you know it could go to the right could go to the left it could you could pause for a bit and then observe and then come back to it and i think it's it really is the power in discussing something and in giving yourself time to figure it out and how does that relate then do you think to the different conceptions of the state so that because obviously you know the state it, it it is just bigger in France and it's they're similarly centralised in, in France and UK. But I, I have the feeling that when in Britain and Haddis has something we have in common with the US, we're not that far down the track, but whenever people talk about the state, because they, I think, may, maybe because we're conceiving it as such a you know, material, tangible thing in people's lives, someone knocking on your, on your door, asking something, someone not answering the phone, that we struggle with the idea that, that it, the state could be something sort of transcendent that also expresses the nation uh, whereas in, in France maybe I'm wrong but you don't have that uh, quite the same anti-state rhetoric because l'état it, it, it represents the republic the re- yeah 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 absolutely I think there are two things here the first is uh, l'état protège you know it protects you and and it's up to the state to make sure that you have time to think to eat properly to enjoy your life and so there's a lot of kind of pressure on on the state to work and that's why you know there's this revolutionary instinct and people go to the streets when they feel that the the state isn't doing as much to enable french people to live and lead their lives the way that they want there is this huge onus and and everyone is part of building that state and that collective um, and because it conditions the way you live and it helps uh and and everything can be linked back to the state. But then there's the second point which you're saying, which is the state and as a concept. And it's just not it's not just an institution. It's it's much more than that. And it's and it's um sort of a reflection of of France and French society. I think that's that's also true because it plays again such a big role in enabling people it well in people's minds, the state plays such a big role in enabling them to live the life that they want. And so they want it to be working well and to be a perfect reflection you know it has to work well because it is the reflection of of, of french society so yes it, it is different thinking of a conversation i had with a a, a farmer in dordogne region uh, who told me and again it's a classic thing i mean these sorts of loved speaking at, you know it's sort of quasi-philosophical discussions about the nature of uh, french society and politics uh, while also sort of unpicking how to get the most out of your CAP subsidies um, in a way that I, it's not a conversation I, I, I have ever had with any British farmers. But something he said to me was, um, uh, yeah, what you have to understand about France is it's basically the last surviving Soviet Republic. Um, and that, but I think and the point being sort of there is something 
um, you know, what we were just describing in terms of relationship with the state. I wonder to what extent that that goes down to a, a really quite fundamental difference in in how much purchase individualism can get on the politics. You know, that Britain is, you know, there is something fundamentally more collectivist in a political culture that has that concept of the state as representing the nation as distinct from you know, the fact that we just the resistance to ID cards in this country is so strong. We're, we're moving more. We are sort of halfway between a French model and an American view that essentially that you, your individuality is a moral principle that is compromised as soon as the government tries to protect you. The idea of the, the l'état protège is is sinister to a large number of American ears and increasingly, I think, British ears yeah. on, on the conservative side. Yeah, and um, and it also, I think, because it's seen as restricting your individual choices whereas in in france it's if you have a well-oiled well-functioning state then for most people it's going to liberate your time and it's going to give you the ability to you know you don't have to worry about accessing the doctor or catching your train on time because because all that's been dealt with and so actually it will free up time to 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 do other things so it i really think it boils down to does it restrict or enable your your yeah, palette of choice in in the way that you want to lead your life, and and they're very and they're very different. But I think also what you see in the United States now is people not being anti-political, but they've become anti you know anti-system. They think that it's not actually politicians who are against them; it's the whole system that is against them. Not everyone, but some people think that. And so, actually, the only way that you can resolve that is by breaking down the system completely, rebuilding it. I think if France came to that state, it would be really worrying because. Because it is so part of their DNA and the, the, you know sort of the way that they a reflection of their own sort of their, their nation and their you know their identity in a way, and so now most of the, the anger is directed to politicians, of course, and the way that they are running the system. But it's not against the system itself. So if you talk to people, you know taxes are, are higher uh, in in France. But if you ask people, are you happy to pay higher tax? They say, well, yes, if if actually it means that my healthcare will be better, education will be, you know, better, that I can sort of eat tomatoes and potatoes that are French produce and that, you know, there's so there's a way they're willing to kind of pay more into it because they because they see it as fundamentally it's so important to the way that they lead their lives. So I think if that if they really turned against us, say that would be really problematic. And the day they become anti-system, I, I really would struggle to see how France could. I mean, it it would be paralysis. It really would. If it's not fully fully anti-system, how anti-elite is it? I mean, it's interesting when we were talking earlier about the sorts of rhetoricians and the ability to to speak uh, you know, normalien. There's a lot of so the liberal left in this country gets very uh, upset and frustrated by the sort of public school culture. There's a lot of discourse around Oxbridge and how healthy it is and how open it is. The Enarch system, I mean, France is a very, very elitist political culture uh, in many respects too. And uh, to what extent, for want of a better word, French populism actively target that if it's not necessarily about draining the swamp and, and actually and rewriting the system? So the French populists target the elite system a little bit, but they don't target the way that the system produces elites, they just say that the elites themselves have lost touch with with what matters. But they don't. You don't hear them criticizing l'école, which is like a system of higher education. You've got l'école normalien; those are the ones who do philosophy and literature and everything else. And then you have 
And now it's no longer called Ella, but it's basically um, a place where you you have to go there if you want to be a politician, an influential politician, minister or, or, or a diplomat. And it also helps if you want to, by the way, be a CEO of a major company. They don't criticise those schools, which they still think actually people who come out of them are going to be brilliant. Um, they're, they're going to know how to run a country. But they just say that those people have lost touch slightly. They're not addressing the issues that really matter. So what they're saying is if those people could address the issues that really matter, would be okay. But I think there's a lot of good things about these schools and you know you you really do learn a lot about kind of France's history its culture how it thinks it's and everything else but it does have a problem of I think it's being it's quite closed one more question about this whether or not system thing because there's something you can maybe help me with here the one thing is there a, a contradiction then or a tension between almost a, what you're describing as sort of deference to the institutions of French statehood that can withstand actually a very populist political culture that's frustrated with the way everything works. You know, so the Gilets Jaunes was was much sort of more, uh, much livelier and more ferocious than a lot of what's happened in this country and yet sort of flared up, settled down again. It seemed, I don't know, looking from the outside, I'm fascinated at how that can look so explosive and combustible and yet also still be contained. And then on top of that, and I hear my French history really runs out of steam, but... There is a tradition of completely reinventing the French Republic. I mean, which republic are we on now? The fifth, the sixth? You know, I mean, I kind of, I, I lose track. You know, they, they, I mean, De Gaulle basically said, "Oh, let's have a new republic." It's like, yeah. So, yeah, sure, is there not an opportunity do, do people from time to time not go, "Yeah, new constitution. This one's we've, we've had this one for at least thirty years. Let's do something else." So that that's definitely their answer, and again shows that they're not saying let's not have a republic or let's not have the state or the system that we have today. Let's just tweak it and change it, uh, and then if you have, you know, you, you hear noises in Paris about should we have the Sixth Republic and there's the Constitution um, uh, functioning the way it does. I mean, I think with the Gilets Jaunes, there is still a sense that that could flare up quite easily. Um, I mean, I think the French government sort of responded by saying, well, we'll, we'll help you with cost of petrol. And we recognise that actually it's not easy for you to catch a bus into work. And so they, they sort of answered that quite quickly. But I don't think any any of that is going away. And and in a way, the problem we have in France is just a hyper-centralised system where it's supposed to be a presidential parliamentary system, but actually a lot of the power lies in the executive and particularly the museum. That's where a lot of the conversations around should we have another, you know, a different republic. So what they tried to do back in the early 2000s was they said, okay, well, let's kind of align the presidential and the parliamentary elections. So let's reduce the presidential term from seven years to five years. We'll have the presidential election. And a couple of months later, we'll have the parliamentary election. And then, you know, and that way the president will be more, well, you know, sort of bear in mind what's happening in, in parliament and take that into account. But what you've seen is it tends to sort of galvanise. So, um, uh, it's, it, well, the presidential election tends to influence uh, the, the the parliamentary election. So if you like the presidential candidate, so think of, you know, the first time Macron was elected, hugely popular. Well, then his sort of new party got a huge majority in, in, in parliament. But then the second time he was elected, not as popular. And then you've seen him lose, you know, have a relative majority. And now... Yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated. I followed this uh, a, a bit. And I'm, again, I'm intrigued by the sort of the relationship France or the French, for want of a better word, term uh, yeah, has with its president have with their president in that it's just weird sort of this 
extraordinary dialogue where they sort of say, okay, you can have the presidency, but we're going to cut you down to size a bit because you can't have parliament as well. I mean, obviously, a, a nation can't achieve that, you know, corporately in an election, but that that sense that you know, I remember there's someone telling me that, oh yeah, all the protests and the making his life difficult and coming out on the streets. You know, that's something we have to do to our president. It's like how it's it, it, it's almost like a sort of a, a blooding that we have to give them. Uh, uh, yeah, don't don't read yeah. too much into it. Um, and so it's quite hard to not read too much yeah. into people coming out of the streets and, and you know, uh, the, the, the president being incredibly unpopular. And actually, it turned out to be true. You know, he still won, ultimately. And it's, um, yeah, we, we're, although we could respond to that as well. But we are, I've noticed we're running out of time and we must get to, there's, a, there's actually an Anglo-French summit coming up. But Macron is our pivot point. Where is he now in light of what I was saying then about his complex dynamic relationship with the French public? And what does he, do you think, want? now out of relationship with the UK? That's a big question, but, you know, sorry, that's what we do on this podcast. No, I, I like it. I would say the level of ambition for the Franco-British summit is different in Paris than it is in London. There is a realisation in both capitals that actually the Ukraine war has forced us to work close together. That's made us realise that we actually do really need to work together with both two nuclear powers in Europe, biggest militaries, share many of these same instincts, our armed forces have a good working relationship. This is silly. Like we can't have a war happening in Europe and, and sort of not be talking. So in a way, they recognise that there's a need to not reset, but at least to kind of dial down the you know, differences and, and sort of the antagonism that we've seen in the past couple of years. But I would say, I think in London, there's a sense of, wow, this is, you know, first time in five years, we need to like really make a big thing out of it. Whereas the French are, are a little bit more cautious. From the French perspective, there's always awareness of thinking, don't think you can get round the back of the commission and the council by doing all bilateral stuff. Ultimately, you want to have big strategic conversations about Europe. You have them with Europe. Don't think you can pull your nuclear weapons out, put them on the table and go, come on, it's Britain and France. We do this ourselves, don't we? Um, and in Britain, there's more a sense of like we had San Malo where we had Lancaster House. You know, these are there are these great moments. Let's have another one of those. Um, is that a, cr- a crude misreading of the situation? There is there is a sense in in Paris that London tries to use bilateralism or like relationships uh, with individual capitals as a way to bypass and ignore the EU. Um, France is obviously clear that there are on some things you have to talk to the EU. You can talk to us, but but there are things that we won't be able to say until you talk to the EU about it. And that's going to be very clear. I think the level of ambition is more really, you know, France has just had a major uh, meeting with the Germans where you had the whole of the government there, the Bundestag, the German parliament coming to Paris and everything else. They, they had a, a summit with, with Spain. And now they've got, you know, a few weeks to prepare for, for the UK one. So I think they really want it to be to have a few things on the table to signal that, yes, we are going to work together, but just it's better to kind of uh, lower the ambition, but deliver on what we promise rather than have huge major ambition and then it not being, you know, quite as good. And I think the British are more of the point of the view that, yes, of course, but also let's be ambitious because we haven't met for the past five years. So it's not that different, but I think there's just a little bit more caution. And also, frankly, the fact that the French have had other summits and then there's a lot happening in the EU as well, which you know continues to be the priority uh, for France. But I think it is important. I think both, and I really hear this on both sides, they want it to be a success. Well, for Rishi Sunak, presumably, one, what he'll want is to be at least be able to come out and say, I've had a good conversation with President Macron and he's agreed we're going, he's agreed we're going to do something about these small boats. And you know, the, the, it's, and that is, in terms of he's got a year plus a bit 
to try and get his re-election campaign sorted out. Mm-hmm. And if he can't deliver on that, be, I mean, his hope might be hopeless anyway. Uh, and I sense that in that respect, there's going to be a problem that the, the typical British parochial tabloid newspaper driven understanding of what's going on here will frame it as Rishi has to go there and you know, read Macron the riot acts and come back with a deal on French boats. And that is not going to be a helpful or useful way of approaching the whole thing. For the French, you know, they understand that this is an issue and that needs to be addressed, but it can't be the only thing. And and I think if you look at what France is is facing, for example, in the Sahel, you know, major problems and as well like terrorism that could potentially spill over, you know, it's a huge uh, problems for the whole of Europe. And I think there they would welcome uh, British kind of, you know, help and, and coordination. And then there are a number of things about Ukraine, the Indo-Pacific, um, how we can, our armed forces can do more together. I think it can't just be about the small boats, but, you know, the French aren't naive. They know that this is politically very salient for Rishi Sunak. But the question is, can both sides find a compromise that basically Rishi Rishi Sunak can sell back to the UK and say this is a major win and that France can sell us we're not losing sovereignty we, we're still you know we are still responsible for what happens on our shores and everything else so it's, it, it is tricky and I think the asks on both sides are, are very different but I think the only way that that can be solved is if if there are other things on the table and I think I'm sure London is already thinking about well what could we offer the French that could really help them and that would make this decision easier for them to to kind of compromise on uh, okay, and we're, we're, I've just looked at the time, and as usual, we've just rambled on very enjoyably, but for uh, <laughs> quite a long time. So, and you've got more important things to do. So, just last question and a half, really, which is: um, what, first of all, what is that thing that, that Britain could offer France? And also, then more broadly, obviously, Brexit isn't done; it's never done. And but you know, there is a sense that British political culture has internalised the idea that we lost our minds and maybe need to just grow up a bit, at least around sort of Whitehall, on on the, the around Downing Street, and that's what Keir Starmer is pitching himself as. Does that mean we can be optimistic that actually an Anglo, Anglo-French relationship alliance, the, the, the boat's it's listed a bit, but it's not going under the water. This is going to just sort of sail on and on because geography and economics and history and culture. I really hope so, um, because actually I think they have a lot to learn from each other and they uh, approach things sometimes differently, but they share the same instincts. And it and it's it's just I think the world is a better place, frankly, if the French and the British talk to each other. What could the French, you know, what could the British do for the French? Um, as I said, I think something in the Sahel would be helpful um, on nuclear as well. France feels very isolated inside the EU right now, um, and I think anything on civil nuclear energy, um, but also non-proliferation, that that would be a natural area of where the, the British and the French could do more together. My real hope is that we'll just see more opportunities for Brits to go to France and for France, you know, French people to go to the UK. It's one of the big sadnesses that you hear when you talk to French people is it's much more expensive to study in the UK. We can't just go and do internships. We can't even, you know, school kids who want to go for two weeks to learn English and spend time with the family, they need a passport now. It's really, it's much more complicated. And actually, if we are to kind of not just rely on stereotypes and really get to know each other and have these sorts of conversations in Paris or in London or Birmingham or, you know, Bordeaux, wherever it is, we need to spend more time uh, talking to each other. And so I hope that there is something there that makes it easier to travel and spend time in each other's countries. That's the perfect note on which to 
to to end. Um, so thank you very much, Georgina Wright, for joining us. Merci beaucoup. Merci à vous. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.